Now, the top of the hour on the Progressive Voices channel on TuneIn presents the Green News Report. In no way, shape, or form will Norfolk Southern get off the hook for the mess that they created. EPA takes control of toxic Ohio train derailment disaster three weeks later. Right-wing media tries to weaponize Ohio disaster into culture war fodder. Plus, surprise, the oil and gas industry has failed to cut climate warming methane emissions as promised. All of those broken promises and more straight ahead. From Bradblog.com, I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyan. Stand by for six minutes of independent green news, politics, analysis, and snarky comment. Trump, who is running in next year's presidential election, met with community members and local officials to get an update on cleanup efforts on the ground. As part of his visit, he also donated more than a dozen pallets of water and cleaning supplies. (laughs) Oh boy, a dozen. This is your... Green News Report. We're bringing thousands of bottles of water, Trump water, actually, most of it. Uh, some of it we had to go to a much lesser quality water. Okay, Desi Doyen, CNN is reporting that in the Ohio train derailment disaster, Norfolk Southern, the train company is paying 6.5 million dollars to help affected residents meanwhile they note the rail company paid its shareholders 7.5 billion what no trump water as well to go with it (laughs) apparently not The Biden Environmental Protection Agency asserted its legal authority this week to take control of the cleanup of the toxic chemical train derailment disaster in East Palestine, Ohio. Finally! Three weeks after the incident, the EPA announced sweeping enforcement actions against railroad company Norfolk Southern and compelled the company to pay the entire cleanup bill. Good. At a press conference, EPA Administrator Michael Regan said he knows the EPA cannot undo the nightmare visited on residents, but reassured the community that it won't be left to handle the aftermath alone after the news cameras leave. Norfolk Southern will pay for cleaning up the mess that they created and the trauma that they inflicted on this community and impacted Beaver County residents. We're not going to leave this community to manage this aftermath alone. Well, one might wonder what has taken them so long to get there. On the other hand, Ohio Governor Mike DeWine doesn't seem to have wanted the federal government there at all. Pennsylvania's attorney general has opened a criminal investigation into the company's actions. Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg also announced a package of reforms and asked Congress to untie the department's hands on enforcement, like increasing maximum fines for rail safety violations that are currently capped at just over 200 Why is it the Pennsylvania Attorney General who's taking action here, not Ohio's Attorney General? That's an excellent question. Thank you. Disgraced former President Donald Trump staged a visit to East Palestine, unintentionally highlighting his own record of slashing regulations on both rail safety and hazardous chemicals. The Trump administration repealed several rules on the grounds that the cost to industry outweighed any potential benefits, but an AP analysis found the Trump administration administration underestimated the costs of future derailments by more than $100 million. Republicans and right-wing media are trying to weaponize the derailment by attacking the federal response, but omitting, as noted, that Ohio's Republican Governor Mike DeWine still has yet to formally request a federal disaster declaration. By the way, I hope someone has checked that Trump water 
for hazardous chemicals. Just saying. The Biden White House countered that congressional Republicans and Trump officials, quote, owe East Palestine an apology for selling them out to rail industry lobbyists when they dismantled Obama-era safety rules. It is darling that suddenly Republicans have decided to become so disturbed about all of this. Uh, Where were those same Republicans when... Uh, People couldn't return to their homes because of the toxic air in Porter Ranch out here in California, thanks to the natural gas industry. Where were those Republicans when toxic lead-poisoned water was being fed to the town of Flint, Michigan? All of a sudden, when it's a bunch of Republicans who are affected by all of this with a Democrat in the White House, suddenly they decide to give a damn. Go figure. In other news, a new report by the International Energy Agency finds that, surprise, the fossil fuel industry is failing to repair its methane leaks despite the industry's pledges to do so. The IEA says the oil and gas industry can cheaply reduce methane emissions by 75 percent using existing technologies, and it said halting non-emergency flaring and venting of gas into the atmosphere, quote, is the most single impactful measure countries can take. Methane matters because it is a more potent climate-warming gas than carbon dioxide over a 20-year period. I'm sure Fox News and all the Republicans are furious about all of that methane poisoning people around the country, right? For much more on all of these stories and the ones we couldn't get to today, check out our website at greennews.bradblog.com. Find, follow, and share us planet-wide on the Facebooks, Twitters, and Mastodons at Green News Report. I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyan. And this has been your Green News Report. It's all been a pack of lies. Please help progressive voices support the Green News Report by stopping by bradblog.com slash donate. From Interfaith Alliance, this is State of Belief Radio. I'm Interfaith Alliance President Reverend Paul Rauschenbusch broadcasting this week from New York City. We've got to be very invitational to those that might be swayed or seduced by some of these beliefs that are tied into Christian nationalism and ultimately, you know, invite them into a gospel that is about radical inclusion, that is about radical love, that is about a commitment to justice. And I think that is the way we disciple people out rather than just kind of condemning The Reverend Adam Taylor is the president of Sojourners, an organization that has joined evangelical faith with social justice commitment in this country for over 50 years. As technology offers unprecedented opportunities for building alliances and community, as well as division and rancor, Adam is rising to the challenge of creating bridges of cooperation with an emphasis on social justice. You can hear State of Belief on the radio and get the podcast on Apple Podcasts and all the other podcast platforms. Every week, I am in conversation with the most fascinating and impactful civic and religious leaders across the country. Please subscribe to it today. State of Belief Radio is made possible in great part by the generous support of our listeners. If you've made a donation, thank you for helping keep these conversations heard by more people who need them. If you haven't pitched in yet, information on how you can help keep this show on the air is available at stateofbelief.com. And you can find out more about the work of Interfaith Alliance and join us in that work at interfaithalliance.org. And now to my first guest. Reverend Adam Taylor is author of the inspiring book, A More Perfect Union, A New Vision for Building the Beloved Community. 
Having spent time in the worlds of education, finance, and even the White House, he is also the president of Sojourners, an ecumenical Christian nonprofit that inspires hope and builds a movement to transform individuals, communities, the church, and the world. It also publishes an invaluable monthly magazine, Sojourners. Adam, thank you for stepping away from all that to be with us today on State of Belief Radio. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be with you. So, Adam, for those of our listeners who aren't familiar with uh, the trajectory of your work and your life, which they're going to be by the end of this interview, uh, can you say a little bit about what part of the country you grew up in and what a little bit of your background is so that so people so that we have a context for what you're doing now? Yeah, absolutely. And uh, full disclosure, I'm a huge Marvel fan. So origin stories are definitely close to my heart. So I'm gonna give you a little bit of my origin story. So I really have to trace it back, like, you know, all of us to my parents. So my mother, who's, who's African-American and my father, who's white, made the controversial decision to get married to each other in 1968. Same wow. year Dr. King was assassinated. Just a year after interracial marriage was legalized across the country through the Supreme Court case, Loving versus the state of Virginia. I always loved that that case was called Loving. <laughs> that so fitting. So they ended up starting a life together in a place called Bellingham, Washington, which is north of Seattle. They both got jobs at Western Washington University, and they chose that place, at least in part, because they felt like it was, you know, more tolerant part of the country where racism wouldn't be the dominant factor in their lives or the lives of their kids. Um, and so they instilled in me two deep and abiding beliefs. One is that all of us are made in the image of God. And that as a result, our diversity, so my diversity as a biracial black man, but in a larger sense, our nation's diversity, racial diversity, religious diversity, was an incredible strength. It was a gift. It was an asset, not a weakness. And then the other thing they instilled in me was that my generation, Generation X, I think we might share the same generation, inherited the unfinished business of the, of the civil rights struggle, that that baton was kind of passed to us. And it's not so much that my parents were huge activists themselves, although they certainly cared deeply about civil rights and human rights, et cetera. But they really gave me the sense that it was my responsibility to carry on that unfinished work. And so I became very mesmerized at a pretty young age around the civil rights struggle and read as much as I could about the struggle. I ended up you know, become very passionate about the ongoing cause of economic justice, of, you know, human rights more broadly. And so that's really kind of animated not only my sense of vocation, but also my sense of calling. And, you know, much later ended up starting to experience uh, a kind of calling into ministry and really resisted it, partly because I compartmentalized ministry to being only a pastor. And as Important as that is, that's not really what I felt called to do. But over time, just realized that my particular call was to try to revitalize and strengthen a commitment to justice within the church broadly, and then to kind of work with other faith traditions who share that commitment to justice. So that that's kind of been the, the through line in my career. And you know, I've tried to live that out in whatever ways I can. 
Actually, that's so great. And I'm so glad I asked you that question because some of that I knew, but some of it I didn't know. And uh, the truth is, is in 1960s, something like 90% of Americans thought interracial marriage was wrong. I think the last time I saw you was when we were working on the Respect for Marriage Act, which was about uh, marriage equality for same-sex couples, but also for interracial couples, which, you know, this is recent history how much people were against that. So, you know, doubly, it makes me kind of recognize how you showed up in that moment, how both of us showed up in that moment, recognizing that this is part of our history and part of our work to ensure that this is this is part of the American rights of people to, to love who they love. And so that, that is just really interesting. I also, like, I've seen you in all sorts of different contexts. I, didn't you work at the World Bank? I mean, do, do I have that yeah. right? I mean, you, <laughs> you so, right. I mean, like, so this is Reverend Adam Taylor has been around. He, he has seen how things can move, how, how people can move in many different settings. And so I think that that's really helpful for your current setting as the head of Sojourners, which is a, you know, I, I still, you know, cause I'm old enough to think of Sojourners as, as that new organization that founded in the seventies, but it's been around for 50 years now doing really important work around moving the faith community, specifically coming out of the evangelical tradition into areas of justice work that might previously have been seen as, um, no-go areas for evangelicals. Can you talk a little bit about Sojourners and, and how you got there and then how you see the organization today? Yeah, thanks for that question. So, you know, this this past year, we celebrated our 50th anniversary. We're kind of extending it out. We actually have a you know celebration you'll be invited to in April. That'll be a part of that. But Sojourners started as... The Post-American actually was our original name. And it started with a group of seminary students, including Jim Wallace, but also others at Trinity Evangelical Seminary, which is just outside of Chicago, fairly conservative, was then, still is now. And this kind of group of first-year seminary students kind of found each other because they were opposing and resisting the Vietnam War very much from a Christian perspective. And that was not a very popular position to take, particularly at Trinity. And, you know, it's a longer story, but they ended up essentially getting pushed out. They got kicked out of the seminary. And so they decided to create a kind of ragtag publication called the Post-American that really was one of the early, I would say, prophetic forms of resistance to a, a kind of earlier version of Christian nationalism. You know, we're still struggling mm -hmm. with Christian nationalism today, and we can talk more about that. But obviously, it's existed in different forms and mutations throughout our history. And there was a particular version of it that they were trying to resist in the 1970s. And so they ended up, you know, literally starting a magazine that, you know, had subscriptions in a shoebox and, you know, word spread pretty quickly because I think it really tapped a, a felt need within the church, particularly the evangelical church at that time. About four years later, they were increasingly drawn to DC because so many of the things that they cared about, you know, the decisions that were being made that impacted the country were, were, were in DC. So they relocated and moved to DC to an, uh, a neighborhood that had just tragically been destroyed after the assassination of Dr. King. So 
Columbia Heights, in addition to others, had just been devastated as a result of the riots that broke out after Dr. King's assassination. And so they created an intentional community, you know, very much kind of modeling the early Acts church, sharing everything in common, et cetera, and produced Sojourner's Magazine, but also had a whole series of spin-off ministries. So that's kind of the, the origin story of Sojourner's, but over time kind of grew into a more formal nonprofit organization that produced a magazine and engaged in a lot of movement building work with Christians of all stripes. So, you know, we've been an ecumenical organization for almost our entire history. And today, about a quarter of our readers and constituency self-identify as evangelicals, about a third are mainline Protestant, a little less than that, a quarter are Catholic, and the rest are Black church, Latino church, Asians, and more. And so one of our strengths is we, you know, we do reflect relatively well the, the diversity of the Christian church in the United States. And our tagline has always been faith and action for justice and peace, that a commitment to justice and peace isn't some kind of optional you know, situation for Christians. It's not some kind of extracurricular activity, right. that it is part and parcel to Christian discipleship. And we've also you know, been very clear that, you know, the, the kind of Christian faith doesn't fit neatly or perfectly in our broken political labels and categories. And, you know, being committed to justice means, you know, challenging authority wherever that might look that is, you know, not, not living in accordance to God's commitment to justice and, and to righteousness and peace. So that a little bit of, of our yeah of our no that that's yeah. really helpful and and uh and that history is really important and i think especially um you know given that it comes out of the the, the tr trinity um evangelical you know that that idea and i think that has carried with it like some responsibility of speaking into the moment of like where 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 do evangelicals sit i know that you you have a, a diverse um crew now, but I still think of uh, Sojourners in some ways as speaking into evangelical circles. And, um, and one of the, you know, one of the, one of the things that obviously Interfaith Alliance is very interested in Sojourners. I know there's other groups, Christians against Christian nationalism, but Christian nationalism, the way it, this ideology that is appropriated language of the gospel and language of Christianity and language of uh, our democracy, but language of our our nation—not so much the democracy, but our nation—put the, fuse them together in some sort of like very powerful power grab um, under the guise of this ideology. I, it seems to me that that is something that probably Sojourners is really focused on right now. It, it absolutely is, and you know, I would argue that. Christian nationalism, and in particular, the kind of white Christian nationalism, yeah. poses the greatest threat to our democracy and the greatest threat to the Christian witness. And I, that's exactly, I feel exactly the same way. And, you know, we as Christians, or really, it's not just limited to Christians, although I think we have a particular role to play, have to be more clear and courageous in, you know, essentially denouncing the perversion of the faith and really naming Christian nationalism as a heresy. And instead kind of saying, this is much more of a political ideology that as you just said quite well, is misusing and abusing Christian symbols and language to justify its agenda. 
And, and, and one of the things that I've kind of been wrestling with is that there are the more overt forms of it that showed up at the insurrection at the Capitol on January 6th. But then there are a lot more subtle versions that have seeped into the church really since the founding of the nation. And then this is something that I, I, I address in, in my, my book, A More Perfect Union, which we can talk more about as well. But one of the things that I think we have to do is debunk many of the myths that have been a part of the, the DNA of our country. And two of them combine together to help supercharge Christian nationalism. So one is the myth that we are a Christian nation, which you know nearly half of Republicans in this country believe as being something that's not a myth, but it's actually true. And then there's the myth that we're a chosen nation, you know, mm. tied into the Puritan mindset that they were going to establish a new Israel in the promised land, i.e. in New England. And, and, the, and the challenge is that those two myths are just so pervasive that they create this, these on-ramps into much more pernicious forms of Christian nationalism, right? That's right. That's right. And, and I, 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 you know, where I agree a thousand percent with what you're saying. I also think like that, that part of that perniciousness is, is the exactly the word is, is that they tie it with, this is what it looks like to be a patriot. Right. Right. And, and so this is American, that, right? Yeah. yeah this yeah. is what you, I mean, and that's really like, if you, if you believe this, you're a real American. If you don't believe this, you're not a real American. I would say this is like, Orwellian in its flip, you know, I mean, where, where like the idea that there's certain people who are real Americans who are the Christian Americans, which are the white Americans, which are the, you know, all the, all these things that, and then everyone else is here by our permission. And if you, and that is like, you know, if you go back and look at the letter of George Washington to the, the Hebrew congregation, he's like, no one gets to say who else is here by their permission. Everyone is here equally. Jews are here equally. Muslims are here equally. You know what I mean? And we could extrapolate. And, you know, this is the idea. So I think what you're saying is a thousand percent correct. Yeah, absolutely. And then this is why I think we need such better, stronger historical education in this country, but also theological education, right? Because if, if historically you really understand that, you know, one of the ways in which the founders were brilliant is they intentionally wanted to create a country where there would not be an established religion. They learned from the 30 years war that destroyed Europe and they wanted to create a real wall of separation between the church and the state. That that is what has enabled religion in America to flourish and has prevented us to go down the direction of a theocracy. And so, you know, there, there's that, that kind of history, but then there's kind of the theological understanding that, you know, this kind of, chosenness can easily morph into a kind of arrogance and triumphalism and idolatry that the Bible clearly <laughs> does not condone. It actually condemns. And so, you know, that's where I feel like we have to just be more diligent. And, and one of the things that we have to be careful about is overly lumping, you know, anyone that has conservative theological or social beliefs is automatically being Christian nationalists. Right. You know, yes, there's overlap there, but they're not one and the same, right? And so, you know, I think we've got to be very invitational to those that might be swayed or seduced by some of these beliefs that are tied into Christian nationalism. And ultimately, you know, 
invite them into a gospel that is about radical inclusion, that is about radical love, that is about a commitment to justice. And I think that is a way we disciple people out rather than just kind of condemning and, you know, so. Can you talk a little bit about how you're viewing the 2024 elections and what you imagine a role for a faithful organization that is not, you know, around endorsing, but is around like recognizing that this is going to be really important for how we how we live together in the future? Yeah, I know it's a really, really timely question. So one of the things that, I mean, really, I think our biggest priority as an organization over the next couple of years is to continue to work tirelessly to ensure that everyone's vote is treated as sacred. And, and the real animating kind of principle, if you will, of the Face United to Save Democracy campaign is the you know shared Judeo-Christian understanding of Imago Dei. Uh-huh. That we are made in the very image and likeness of God. And if you believe that, then you really have to believe and have to be committed to ensuring that every single eligible voter is able to exercise their fundamental right to vote. It is both the bedrock of our democracy, what gives our democracy its legitimacy, but it's also a faith commitment. And, and the reason we, part of the reason we framed it that way is that Sadly, the kind of right to vote has been partisanized. You know, it's metastasized into this kind of partisan issue, which was not the case over the last, you know, 20 or 30 years. Now, clearly, huge fights took place over the right to vote in the lead up to the passage of the 1965 Voting Rights Act, which was one of the crowning achievements of the civil rights struggle. And I had to be honest, going back to my earlier statement about feeling like we inherited the unfinished business of the civil rights struggle, I I took for granted that the right to vote had been won and that that wouldn't have to be a part of that ongoing work. But Frederick Douglass, the great abolitionist, once said, where there, uh, you know, without struggle, there's no progress. And the right to vote has to be continually struggle, you know, it has to be a continual struggle to protect it, right? And so, yeah. you know, one of the things that I am hopeful about is that the kind of assault on the right to vote that we've seen take place over the last 10 or so years has elicited a movement, a kind of pro-democracy movement that has had a lot of success in, in kind of pushing back and in, in kind of ensuring that, that people are able, able to exercise the right to vote. In this last midterm election, we saw a major defeat for election denialism, which was yeah. you know, not a given and, and grateful that it happened. That being said, our democracy is still probably in one of the most, its most fragile states. And one of the set of changes that has happened in a lot of states around the country, like in Georgia, like in Texas, is laws that are passed that make it possible for state legislators to overturn the election results Shocking. within a particular county, right? So, Shocking. right, the state, of Georgia, the state of Georgia, the legislator could overturn the results <laughs> in Fulton County in Atlanta, for example. Now, that wasn't really tested in the midterms because it wasn't a presidential election year. But I think we're going to face a much bigger threat going into 2024. And it's imperative that not only people are educated about what's possible, but that they are ready to resist those kind of efforts if they if they do, in fact, take place. Um, we are kind of growing the Face United campaign. We want to make it much more multi-faith and much more multiracial. 
kind of started with an emphasis on the black church, but we've been recruiting a lot of other white allies and Asian allies and Latino allies. The right to vote is something we should all care about and try to protect. And we also really want to work more with rabbis and imams and others. We need to take another quick break, but up next, more with Adam Taylor. If you miss any part of today's program, you can hear full episodes of State of Belief anytime on our website. You'll also find links to the topics we discussed this week, extended interviews and transcripts, and an archive of past shows all on stateofbelief.com. You're listening to State of Belief Radio, where religion and democracy meet. Since 2006, important conversations, inspiring guests, State of Belief Radio from Interfaith Alliance. 911, what's your emergency? America's healthcare system is broken and people are dying. Welcome to Code Whack, where we shine a light on America's callous healthcare system, how it hurts us, and what we can do about it. I'm your host, Brenda Gazar, this time on Code Whack. What's the potential price tag of not having health insurance in America? How much could you rack up in bills for an ambulance ride and a night of hospitalization if you're not insured? To find out, we spoke to Venus Lockett, a Georgia resident who faced tens of thousands of dollars in medical debt after suffering a mini stroke while unemployed in 2016. So I got one bill that was 200 and something dollars, right? And I'm thinking that was it. Naive me, because I really don't go to the hospital. But I'll tell you, when that bill came for $26,000 and something, I about like had another uh, mini stroke. I was just outdone at the cost of it, you know? And so it was like, how am I going to pay this? I just started to worry. And then by me being unemployed, I didn't want that to hit my credit report. I tried to call to figure out how I could pay. And I think I must have made the call to the wrong organization or something because they told me there was nothing they could do, not even a payment plan. And that didn't seem right to me. And so shortly after that, I received, you know, more bills. But I just kind of set it aside for the moment while I got my mind wrapped around what just happened. Thank you, Venus Lockett. Join us next time when we continue our discussion with Venus and hear how she coped with her more than $30,000 of medical debt at a time that she was both uninsured and unemployed. The full Code Wax story on ProgressiveVoices.com and on the PV app. Catch all our episodes by subscribing to Code Whack wherever you find your podcast. This podcast is powered by Heal California, a nonprofit that uplifts the voices of those fighting for healthcare reform around the country. Until next time, stay healthy. Hey, it's Stephanie Miller. Here's what we're talking about. So you decided to torture me with Hannity and Cruz in addition to Tucker? Just well, because. Because the, the invasion has begun, and the Fox has gone all in on this invasion. Right. Spoken to the American people about it, but it could be an unidentified flying object, maybe an extraterrestrial. That's that's NORAD. You never know, Senator. Well, you know, uh, we, we've got aliens crossing our southern border. Maybe they're crossing our northern border in the skies, too. Il, you know, apparently, illegal immigrant, illegal alien is no longer correct, but yes, I understand your point. <laughs> <laughs> I still turn the box music. <laughs> oh, uh, Hannity also had Marjorie Taylor Greene on to complain that not enough money went toward rail safety in the bill that she voted against entirely. Correct. So, did he bring that up at all? That that might be hypocritical in some way? That it was uh, infrastructure week every week under Trump, but none ever actually ever got done. And when it did get done, she voted against the whole thing, which included rail safety. She can take that line down yeah. to the corner market because this fight yeah. and dime ain't buying it anymore. Yeah, and buying her in line today. Where's that from? Get to work. If you send us up the mountain one more time, we, know we, will, we will snap. <laughs>
We, you guys don't understand how on the edge. Oh, we try to ignore, but we are actively yeah. violent towards you yeah. now. If yeah. you send us yeah. the Grace and Frankie. I found out where it's from. It's from Grace and Frankie. <laughs> Seriously, if you want to get on our nerves, this is how you do it. Yeah. Yep. Go. Don't do All it. Right, if, if you're on our Twitter, There's I'm going to mute or block you. We apologize. There's a lot of horrors up in this house this morning. A lot of bastard people. We apologize. We're in a mood. We don't know. We've had to talk about Donald Trump for too many years. Yes, Marjorie Taylor Greene reacted to last week's hazardous train uh, derailment in East Palestine, Ohio, which released toxic chemicals, chemicals such as vinyl chloride into the air. Residents reported seeing uh, dead wildlife. Suddenly, they're concerned about wildlife, like, I guess, on the right. Find The Stephanie Miller Show every Monday through Friday at 9 to noon Eastern, 6 to 9 Pacific, right here on Progressive Voices. You've got us 24 hours a day on your mobile smartphone via the Progressive Voices app. This is the Progressive Voices channel on TuneIn. State of Belief from Interfaith Alliance. With Reverend Paul Rauschenbusch. Made for such a time as this. Welcome back to State of Belief Radio. I'm Interfaith Alliance President Paul Rauschenbusch. I'm with the Reverend Adam Taylor, author of the book, A More Perfect Union, A New Vision for Building the Beloved Community. Talk to me a little bit about your book, A More Perfect Union. It casts a vision, but also shows the urgency of the need. I'm enjoying this conversation so much because I see your passion from your where you come from, and then you're you know engaging with Dr. King and, and Congressman Lewis, uh, this, this idea of like, how do we keep going? How do we keep building this beloved community? It's hard work. And right now we're experiencing this incredible backlash and the attempt to erase history and all these, the ways we're seeing this wild sort of people don't even want to read Dr. King anymore. I mean, how, how did we, I mean, it's extraordinary. It reminds you actually, it, it makes it real because when Dr. King was alive, people were furious with him for being so honest. <laughs> and now people are, are, are feeling emboldened to, to be furious with him again for, for speaking truth. I mean, so let me, let me, let me give you, you know, just a chance to tell us a little bit more about your book, a more perfect unit came out in 2021, um, but still feels as relevant today. Yeah. So thanks. Let me give you a little context around why I felt kind of motivated to write the book. So in the lead up to the, 2016 election, I was just feeling this anguish in my soul as I watched then candidate Trump stoke a lot of the worst vices and, and kind of demons within the American psyche, um, particularly his appeals to racism, to misogyny, to xenophobia, etc. And the fact that he won because of some of those things, not a, just not in spite of them, was was crushing for me and it actually is what helped prompt my decision to leave the world bank i was doing some really good work at the world bank at the time leading what was called a faith initiative and realized i couldn't be faithful to my sense of calling particularly to try to strengthen the, the religious response the christian response in particular against this kind of mega vision and i became really frustrated in that moment because i'm a big believer in the power of narrative and the power of moral vision and I really felt like there was a vacuum, particularly on the democratic and, 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 and another way of putting that in the kind of progressive side of things, to have a clear moral vision that could overpower and counteract 
what I would argue was a kind of dystopian, ahistorical vision of the Make America Great Again slogan. But that slogan, that vision was a very effective one because it helped to stoke white grievance. It played to white fears about the changing demographics in the country, which were really starting to come into public consciousness around that time. And, you know, obviously is linked to, you know, much a deeper story about who the, the rightful primary American should be going forward. Um, and so I wrote this book as a way to try to essentially recast and reimagine the vision that animated the civil rights movement, which was the vision of the beloved community that Dr. King did an event, as you know, he learned that about that vision through the Fellowship of Reconciliation and Josiah Royce was one of the persons that coined the words, the beloved community, but he actually learned it even more so from his mentor, Howard Thurman. You know, I think one of the, the greatest mystics and theologians, you know, I wish it was required reading for every Christian, maybe every every person to read Jesus yeah. and the Disinherited. That is, you know, apparently, you know, there's, it's kind of, I, I believe this, but it's alleged that Dr. King carried two books in his suitcase, the Bible and Jesus and the Disinherited. So, uh, but but what I realized is that, not just realized, this is what I believe, the, the beloved community is arguably the most unifying and powerful moral vision that I think could help be an antidote to so much of the severe polarization that we see in our society and our politics today. Now, I don't wanna overplay this. It's not gonna be a panacea to cure all of our ills as a nation, right? But you know, the book of Proverbs says, where there lacks vision, the people perish. And I believe that we absolutely need a kind of shared language, a shared vision. So what I did in this book is I, both build on what Dr. King and other civil rights leaders had to say about the beloved community, you know, Fannie Lou Hamer and Congressman John Lewis and Diane Ann Nash and so many others. But what I realized is that one, most of them referenced the beloved community constantly, but didn't necessarily fully define it or fully unpack what, what the beloved community is. And then two, we have to define it in contemporary terms for our particular moment that we're in now. And so, as I reflected on this, I, I came up with my own succinct definition of the beloved community, which is to build a society, to create a nation where neither punishment nor privilege is viciously attached to race, to ethnicity, to gender, to ableness, to sexual orientation, and to religion. And you know, beyond that, to build a society where everyone is valued, everyone is respected, everyone has equal value, and everyone is enabled to thrive. Now, of course, that is a huge vision, right? But the first part of that vision is actually quite measurable. We can measure through public policy, through political decisions about whether it helps to exasperate the degree to which punishment is tied, particularly to race and ethnicity in this country, mm. or whether it helps to dismantle that. We can measure whether you know, privileges are still tied to those core parts of our identity. And I actually think that the vast majority of Americans agree that Punishment nor privilege should be tied to those things, right? Yeah. I mean, we disagree. Well, you, you know, what, right? what's really kind of lovely uh, about that is that I see your World Bankness in mm. all of that because, mm. like, very much impact. What is the impact? Like, how do we measure it? If you go back, like, the kingdom of God, the centrality of the kingdom of God, and, like, that's another, like, how do we reflect the values 
yeah. of Jesus in the way we, I mean, and which is of course very Christian centric. I understand that, but for, for, you know, it's an, it's also a way the beloved community should reflect these idea of justice, the idea of love of, of, of equality and what you're bringing it into yet another step, which is let's start measuring this. Let's not have it just as like an idea that is out there as an abstract, but actually it's in some ways what they say quantifiable, which, you know, I mean, which I love like that. There's, let's think about this in ways that we can really say, this is actually antithetical to the beloved community. And I think that that's doable. And, and I, what what I also really admire about what you're doing is, and I I feel like I'm part of this effort too. Is like how do we, how do we cut through, in in a way that is really people get immediately they hear it and they want to be a part of it and and that's I think as you say the evil genius of make America great again is there was a certain swath that apparently was big enough. Um, who resonated with that. But what we need to have is a rallying cry that is even bigger and actually more encompassing and welcoming. Uh, and we don't want to like, we're not going to play the same games because we don't want it to be divisive in the same way. But we do want to recognize that narrative messaging matters and that we're, we want to be absolutely as as smart as we possibly can. Talk to me a little bit about how you see... Um, race playing in the 2024 election like from your perspective who's been around the block you i think you were in obama's white house right i did i, I mean you so you've been in you've been in politics in in various manifestations how do you imagine race playing out in our uh election especially in this moment where you know there is an attack an attack on this perceived crt this like, you know, which most people have no idea what that is. There's an attack on diversity, equity, and inclusion. You know, like the idea that we, you know, people should be making an honest effort around that. And then, you know, and then er erasing AP African-American studies. There's just, it's very interesting to see like the, the explicit attack on acknowledging race in uh, and and the um, the history of racism in this country, yeah. and so I'm wondering how you imagine race, particularly kind of anti-black racism, playing out in the 2024 election, and 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 some of how you imagine um, mobilization of black communities in response to it. Yeah, that's a great question. So. I think it's going to be a go-to strategy, sadly. Um, kind of what we see happening in states like Florida, but also in other parts of the country, is this real effort to try to tap into white fear and white grievance, and essentially distract folks to to kind of feel this sense of moral panic that you know they're losing their country, that they're under assault, that Blacks and immigrants are going to take their rightful place, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And you know, this is this is a old script that you know has been updated, right? So we know that very old script, and not just an American script. It's used yeah, around right. the world right. to really like to support authoritarianism. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. And you know, one of the things that one of my favorite chapters in, in my in my in my book is focused on a pluribus unum and you know, some some folks might 
have forgotten that e pluribus unum used to be the motto of the United States. It got replaced in the 1950s with In God We Trust. And, you know, New Pluribus Unum is all about out of many people, one, right? So it embraces and cherishes our diversity and doesn't, you know, at its best, try to homogenize us into, you know, a kind of one white or a white adjacent community. Instead, it says, no, the richness and strength of our country is in its diversity. And so, you know, I kind of reflect on what, what does that require? What does that look like for where we are today? And part of what I argue is that we have to overcome this racialized zero-sum mentality, which I think has infected our politics and infected the psyche of far too Americans, where they have been convinced that any gains by African-Americans or other uh, racial minorities has to come at their expense. And then, you know, that, again, that's also an old story, but it's not one that vibes with or is aligned to our faith story, right? We serve a God of abundance. We serve a God of justice, a God of love, right? And so, so part of what I think we have to do is we have to close the relational gap between people, which is not going to happen overnight, but we have some time between now and the, and the next election to even play a small part in trying to build relationships with folks that maybe have a very different background than ourselves. There was a, a, a survey that's done each year called the American Value Survey, and they found that, and this, this is kind of hard to believe in some ways, but 90% of white Americans that they surveyed didn't have a single person of color in their really close social network, like someone that they deeply trust, that they confide in, et cetera. Now, it is so much easier to distrust and even demonize someone that you have no relationship with, right? right. You haven't had those deeper conversations with. So, so someone I think we have to do is like close some of those relational gaps. Then we've got to be able to help close a kind of narrative gap about, and this is ties into the, you know, the battles being fought over CRT, et cetera, but, but, you know, really try to develop more of a shared understanding of our history and how that history continues to often show up in the present and then that enables us to have a kind of shared baseline of understanding of how we get to where we want to go for the future. And then the, the, the third gap is this kind of um, values gap, which I actually don't think is as big as many people would like you to believe. But, but to really get to the heart of what are some of our shared values that actually creates the space for common ground. And, you know, that is hard to do in our deeply polarized context, but is desperately needed work that I think a lot of organizations are, are doing some of this work. Sojourners is doing some of this work through a, a new curriculum that's actually going to be coming out in the next month that's called Bridging Divides, that is literally designed to help pastors in particular, but you know Christian leaders that find themselves in very divided context to figure out how do they help create greater space for civil and courageous dialogue rooted in shared biblical principles so that the church can be this force, this catalyst to build a sense of resilience and a, and a, and a commitment to a, a broader kind of civic set of commitments that we think could help strengthen and revitalize our democracy over time. And I, that, I, it, yeah. yeah, it's so it's so good because also if you learn those skills at church, you can use them in other settings and you can offer, you know, that kind of wisdom at your work, at your PTA, at your, you know, whatever, wherever you are. If you can learn those skills, that's that's very radical. I, 
I'm curious how you imagine, um, again, doing the mobilization and the outreach to the black church or, you know, and, and making sure that people have the ability to get to the polls, like, you know, the poll chaplain work and, and other things. It just seems really important in a, in a moment where, you know, God, I know you saw the same thing I did with the, those, those, those people just who had, who had registered to vote because they had done their time and they were told they could vote. This is in Florida. Right. And then they were, you know, and then they were arrested and they filmed the arrests in a stunt. You know, this feels just really critical that those of us, us in, in faith settings not be intimidated by these stunts and recognize that part of our role is to, as you say, let everyone vote. That's part of our religious commitment, but it's also part of our patriotic commitment. Yeah. Yeah, no, absolutely. So we're, we're going to be doing a lot of voter engagement and voter edu- education. Um, you know, sadly, there's a lot of folks, particularly young people, including in the Black community, that are you know deeply cynical and, and disillusioned with the political process and certainly understand many of the reasons why. Um, but I think we have to be that much more convincing and that much more assertive about what is at stake in this election? How will this election impact your real life? And, you know, a kind of conceptual commitment to democracy isn't going to cut it, you know, as much as that resonates with me and probably with you, like we have to get down to brass tacks that this is going to be next Y and Z for your life and your future. The other thing we have to do is one of the components of our Face United work is called We Are Watching. So we literally are organizing meetings with senior election officials and in many cases, secretaries of state who often don't get nearly enough tough love as they need. And you know, we're organizing coalitions of faith leaders to meet with them to say, we wanna work with you to ensure that there's a free, fair and safe election. And we're gonna hold you accountable to that. We're gonna be watching and we're gonna be speaking on the media and we're gonna work to ensure that that happens. And then, as you, as you alluded to, the, the poll chaplain program is going to be essential. Um, both to, so essentially, what we do is we, we train uh, faith leaders on how to provide a moral presence at vulnerable polling sites. So, these are sites in or polling places in predominantly Black neighborhoods, Latino neighborhoods, in low income neighborhoods. And they literally spend the day on election day. And actually, we're going to try to expand it so that it also happens in early voting days because a lot of a lot more people are voting early. And, and have them not only be a presence, but be a resource to, to be able to answer questions that people have, be able to be a deterrent for intimidation and violence. Fortunately, we didn't see that in a widespread way in the midterm election. But I think the risk for that is much greater in the presidential election. Right. And, you know, if we have a force of religious leaders that are literally at polling sites, it really could be a powerful deterrent. And then we oftentimes work as, alongside lawyers to be able to troubleshoot questions that people have. And right. so, you know, in one sense, <laughs> it's kind of frustrating that in this day and age, we've got to do that kind of work. <laughs> gender, right. To make sure that people can exercise their faith, sacred right to vote. But, you know, this is a moment where we got to be extra diligent. And I'm really hopeful that there is going to be not only, you know, a lot of, lot of faith leaders are going to be volunteering to play these roles, but they're also going to be willing to kind of get into good trouble if that's necessary. If some of these election uh, processes go awry and you see some of the 
you know, more hostile actions of election officials, or you see, you know, states try to nullify the votes of whole populations. I mean, we're literally going to be in a crisis moment in that kind of scenario. And we got to make sure we're prepared and that we're willing right. to sacrifice in that, in that moment. A hundred percent. So this is, I, I, I really appreciate all your wisdom. I want to ask you a final question. Uh, what is giving you hope in this moment? Yeah, I mean, I will say, and I referenced this a little bit earlier, that the outcome of the midterm elections gave me hope. The fact that election denialists really lost across the board, particularly in statewide races, was really significant. I I, I mentioned that I grew up in Bellingham, Washington. When I was 16, I moved to Tucson, Arizona. And so I still have some strong roots in Arizona. My parents still live there, retired there. And we could have seen a state essentially taken over by a kind of fascist regime. You know, Kerry Lake and others were not only election denialists, but they really were kind of anti-democracy. And so tell, t say a little bit more about why that gives you hope. It gives me hope because it shows that, well, yes, it was too close. I believe that the majority of not just Americans, but even the majority of Christians are on the side of justice and the common good and wanting to preserve, not just preserve, but probably strengthen our democracy over time. And you know, we haven't talked about so many things that are desperately needed. I mean, voting is just the starting point. We've got to end gerrymandered districts. We need to, you know, abolish the electoral college. We need to ensure we get money out of, out of politics. So there's a whole series of things that are absolutely crucial. I'm actually become a huge proponent of ranked choice voting and open primaries. Just really quick, you know, one, one statistic that just is really sobering. In the, the midterm election in 2022, 90% of all congressional seats were decided not in the general, but in the primary. And only 8% of eligible voters voted in the primary. So you can imagine wow. pretty quickly who those 8% were. They tended to be the most ideologically extreme, the most strident, right. et cetera. And they're the ones that are really supercharging what's happening in our politics right now. Right. So yeah, we need these deeper reforms. We can't get to the deeper reforms unless we can convince people of good faith and conscience to actually vote and be engaged between now and 2020 24. And I believe we'll, they, we'll then be at a precipice to create the kind of transformational change in our democracy that could help bring us much closer to the beloved community. Oh, well, your lips to God's ears. If anybody can do it, you can do it with uh, lots of help from our listeners and, and from many, many other organizations. I am just so grateful for all of your wisdom, all of your work uh, that you are doing now and have done and will do. Thank you so much for joining us on State of Belief Radio. Thank you. I'm just excited to tell you about something that I experienced a couple of weeks ago in Florida. I spoke with a community of people down there who are so eager to imagine a future where everyone is included, where people of all different religious backgrounds, all races, all ethnic backgrounds, uh, sexualities, genders, where they can all live with respect and dignity. 
And yet they feel like they're located in a space and in a place where that is under attack, like really viscerally. And they they felt so alone. And and yet when I came down there and gave a talk, something like 180 people came together and it was an amazing experience for me because people, they reminded me that we're all eager for connection and we're all eager to have an imagination of a way forward together. And I really talked about Christian nationalism and the threat it poses to this country and also about what religious freedom really means and why it's important that we know our history. We know our history. And one of the reasons it's so clear that they want to, you know, restrict history is that history is very clear. This country was intentionally founded to be for everyone. It was not intentionally not made to be a Christian nation. That is clear from all of George Washington saying. It's clear. If you don't know the Treaty of Tripoli, look it up. It was signed by the entire uh, Senate at the time and written by George Washington and Adams. And it says, in no way was America founded as a Christian country. Religion has no part of it. And so I just think it was it was great for people to think, oh yeah, we're not we're we're not um we're not out of line. We're actually in line. We're the we are the American people. We are the American dream. So co- going down to Florida, meeting with uh, a group there, and and they are eager. They're gonna start a new interfaith alliance affiliate down there and it just gave me hope, and I feel I, I want to encourage everyone who's listening to look around you, find people who are trying to build the country that we're all dreaming of together, join together, feel less alone, and, uh, and, and if there's any way that Interfaith Alliance can be helpful or state of belief in any way, let us know, reach out to us. But amazing experience in, in Southwest Florida and uh, and more on the horizon. So just wanted to share that experience with you. And hopefully it will offer you a, a bit of hope today uh, and make you feel less alone. As I was in Florida, what gave me hope was listening to these people who were so eager to really roll up their sleeves, get to know one another, and to work together to, to find a way to build community in a in a place where community was hard to find and also to really stand up for people. I mean, these there were a lot of people in that uh, the the audience who came and who were really showing up and saying, actually, we do not want in our schools, uh, don't say gay bills, even though they are not gay and they don't have kids who are gay, but they recognize that that is not good for their community. And, and in so many examples of that, people showing up for one another, learning about one another, and then standing up, standing with, um, showing up with one another. And it, it just gives me so much hope for the future and, and how we're going to all come together and must come together to fight Christian nationalism and fight a lot of the ex- religious extremism that fa- is facing us around the country. And with that, I'm afraid that's all the time we've got for this week's show. We need your help keeping this show on the air, and I hope you'll consider being a partner in this crucial work by making a financial contribution today. Information on how to donate is available at stateofbelief.com. That's stateofbelief.com. 
And you can also be part of making sure informative and encouraging voices like these are heard by sharing this program with friends and family. Let's get more people listening and more people taking part in these conversations, both on and off the air. Never miss an episode by subscribing to the weekly State of Leap podcast on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast platform. And join the conversation. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter at State of Belief and share State of Belief with the people in your life. State of Belief is produced by Ray Kirstein and is a production of Interfaith Alliance. Become a member today at interfaithalliance.org. And be sure to join us next week. I'll be talking with Reverend Jennifer Bailey, founder and executive director of Faith Matters Network and co-founder of The People's Supper. I can't wait. Until then, I'm Paul Rauschenbusch on State of Belief where religion and democracy meet. I think it's time we stop, children. What's that sound? Everybody look what's going down.